We come before you because we acknowledge that you are the source of all we need, whether it be physical or spiritual. We come before you and we ask as your people that you would speak to us here tonight, that you would just open your word to us, that you would give us what we need. I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide all that I say and do. I pray that you would just minister to each person here. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would turn to Romans 12. I know we've been there quite a bit, and I had no intention of being there tonight, but that's where I wound up. Obviously, Romans 12 has more in it than one person in one meeting could possibly deal with. But I just want to touch on a few verses, and then I want to move on from there. But we've heard a lot of messages, or enough messages, I think, in the last month or so, that has been somewhere in Romans 12, and having to do with either serving or being a servant or or being a part of a body and what that all entails. And I think we could hear something like that again. Um, so if you would, Romans 12 and verse 1 says, and we know this verse, says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, we read that and we tend to look at that and we think, well, is that optional? It's really not optional, isn't it? And when you present your body a living sacrifice, you're basically presenting your entire life, right? Your ears, your eyes, your words, your body. Everything you do with your body has now been presented to God as a sacrifice to Him. In other words, we now become a servant to him. I think we all in this room, I maybe we don't ever think about it. Do you see yourself, I think you probably do, do you see yourself as a servant of the Lord? Do you see yourself as on a daily basis with whatever you do in life, are you serving the Lord in that? Because unless I'm different than everybody else, I don't always see it that way. Sometimes I see things I do as just something I do. And I don't necessarily see it as this is me as a living sacrifice serving God in whatever I do. With my words, with my hands, with what I watch, with what I listen to. By saying that and by reading that verse, which we know so well, we're really saying that we have now dedicated our entire lives to God as a living sacrifice. So when we think about what a servant of the Lord is, We think that anyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you truly believe that, you have now declared yourself as his servant, haven't you? Because if he's Lord, he's not just Lord over your circumstances to work them out for your benefit all the time. He's not just Lord over the wind and the waves. He's Lord over... You, if you're going to confess him to be that. So you now are saying that I am confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. I've now declared myself to be under his lordship. And now I'm a subject. I am a servant of his. So we all probably think of ourselves that way. But what does it mean to serve? 
See, we probably all like the idea of, yeah, I'm serving the Lord. And, and we've heard it numerous times in the past month or so. Serving the Lord is not just going to Guatemala. Serving the Lord is not going to Dominican. Serving the Lord is not just teaching or, or witnessing. That's, that's part of it, right? But we need to see our lives as living sacrifices and everything we do we should see as serving the Lord. And there's plenty of people in here that know how to do that with their neighbors in their neighborhood, with people at work, with whatever they're doing. We've got to remember that we are to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That doesn't mean we cringe and cower at Him. He is still our Heavenly Father. But I don't know how your father was, but I know I didn't just come up to him and slap him on the back and say, Hey, yo, bud. I mean, I did have some respect for my father. And sometimes it was fear because I knew what was coming when I wasn't behaving. We also know that we have been bought for a price. We've been bought at a very high price. We are... Therefore, to glorify God in our body and our spirits, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6.20. So we think that reasonable service, Romans 12.1 tells us that a, us presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice is reasonable service. In other words, it's rational. It's, it's okay, right? I mean, that's the bare minimum. We've all heard these sermons. The question is, do we view everything we do as servant, as serving Him? Because if we look a little further, Romans uh, verse 3 in the same chapter, he says, I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as many... For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now, if you and I are living sacrifices and this is the next teaching, then our serving and serving his body, if we're going to serve him, these are the things, and Paul mentioned them Sunday, these are, these are things that are given to each member in here to some degree or another. And that's how we serve the Lord. We know that when I serve one of you or, you know, I, we do something that we call serving, we need to really see that as I'm serving the Lord. I, I may be helping you, but you're part of his body. Right? That's why we have body ministry in here, right? We, we think that's important. We know that's important. We need to serve one another in that way. But he goes on in verse 9. 6 and 8 are, are those various gifts that have been placed in the church for its edification. But he goes on in verse 9, and he lists a very, I don't know how you'd say it, but, you know, a whole bullet list, you know, just a whole list of things that should characterize a life lived by a Christian who is, in my opinion, in this chapter, a living sacrifice. And he goes on in verse 9, he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. 
not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. How'd you do with that list? Right, you're a living sacrifice, right? So as a living sacrifice, these are the things that he's telling us here in verse 11 that we should not lack in diligence. Right? I mean, one of the things here he's saying is, personally, we need to not lack in diligence. Or the King James says, not slothful in business. Well, that word diligent has to do with giving haste or an earnestness to what you're doing. It has something to do with the, the, the whole attitude of your life needs to be in earnest haste towards something. We need to be applying ourselves. And we all know how, what it means to apply ourselves in business because anybody who's successful in business has <clears throat> given diligence. Those who aren't diligent in business, we all know they're on welfare. Right? I mean, that's what happens. You've got to give some diligence. But here he's talking about not lacking in diligence or don't get lazy. And then he goes on and says, fervent in spirit. Wow, here's the one that I thought about, and I looked at these things, and I thought, fervent in spirit. That means to be hot to the point of boiling. Wow. Hot to the point of boiling. You're that intense about what you're diligent about. There's something about your life that has an intensity about it that's more than just, it's another church meeting. It's Wednesday. I hope he doesn't mind if I doze off a little. Believe me, I understand if you do. <laughs> Some of you up and up earlier than me. <laughs> and you might work harder than I do. But see, there's something about this living sacrifice, this being his servant that involves our lives being not lazy. And there should be some fervency in spirit. And he goes on and says, serving the Lord. So when we think about a servant... I mean, we know that Elisha had a servant. We know that Elisha was Elijah's servant. Joshua was Moses' servant. Abraham had servants. They all did what? They were all there to to serve those people, to do what their wishes were. They didn't choose to do whatever they wanted to do or how they wanted to do it. Now, this sounds like... Slavery, right? Now, in this country, we have a very high aversion to slavery because we have this connotation of our history of what that means, right? I mean, it was misuse of humanity. It was, it was abusing people. But we got to remember that we, as servants of the Most High God, we're not serving a harsh taskmaster. We're serving... A benevolent, a benevolent dictator. We serve one who cares so much about us 
that when we serve Him, He is looking out for our best interest and He promised to take care of every need you have. But He wants us to serve Him with a fervency, with a diligence. See, this is this to me is the life of faith. It's not only that we have promises that we can adhere to and cling to and claim, but it's also when we go out in the world and we bless those who persecute us and we don't do evil to others. That's as much faith as you believe in for a new car. Because you've got to live this life as a living sacrifice. You've got to put yourself in a place as a servant amongst those in the world and live a certain way as his slave, as his servant. And sometimes you're going to really have to exercise some faith, aren't you? You're going to have to believe that when I do the right thing, God has got my back because I'm serving him. I might be getting abused by people. I might be having to actually sacrifice something for somebody else. Does God see that or not? Or does he just go, well, you're on your own, buddy. He sees it all. And he knows that those of us in here who have some diligence, who have some fervency, who are willing to be those who are yielded and are living sacrifices, he knows who we are. And he has committed himself to our care, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. I mean, we've got people that go to dangerous places in the world to some degree. They're going because they have a motivation. They are, in my opinion, people who do missionary work and go places. To me, that's as much a living sacrifice as it gets because they are saying, I'm all yours. I mean, there's people who have gone out of here and they go places and they are now. They're not so much concerned about their life and their wills. They've become a living sacrifice and they are willing to do what's on their heart and go and follow the Lord, trusting that as His servant, He's got me. He's going to take care of me. So a servant, when you talk about a servant, that already supposes that there's a superior, right? I mean, you, don't, you can't be a servant without a superior, right? And a superior would be that one who gives the instructions, has a plan, has a, a way of wanting his servants to do things, and they do them. They do them all, and they do them the way he wants them done. Now, what's a volunteer? I mean, there's a difference, right? You can volunteer to be a servant, but what's a volunteer? A volunteer goes, yeah, I'll volunteer, but I'll do it when I want, and I'll kind of do it how I want. But don't anybody tell me how I got to do it and when I got to do it. I'm a volunteer. See, there are no volunteers other than the volunteers who have given themselves and are now living sacrifices. They're the ones who have voluntarily, as Jesus did, voluntarily became a servant to God at whatever cost. See, now we, we think that when we talk about being a servant and we are those who would give up your will and defer to another person's will, we tend to bristle at that, don't we? I mean, don't, you know, I mean, I, maybe I'm the only independent cuss in here. 
<laughs> because I can be like that, believe me. Just my upbringing and, you know, you know how it goes, how you were raised or what happened in your life. You tend to be, I have anyway, I learned to be extremely self-sufficient because I learned that or felt that I could not trust people. And that's, a, that's not a good thing to have to overcome in life. But it causes you to become self-sufficient. I don't need your help. Well, guess what? I need your help. We all need each other's help. And for, for, for somebody like me to be stubborn and think, I've got this all together, is a mistake. Because my life isn't always all together when I'm trusting in myself. But we, we tend to bristle at the idea that we would surrender our will to another. And we talk, we talk about that in Christian circles all the time, don't we? I surrender to Jesus until, and until, uh, you know, wait a minute. See, we're no longer living sacrifices or we're no longer a servant when we tend to draw back when it comes time to really put it to the road, right? The rubber meets the road and it's suddenly, I'm in an assembly of people, I'm a member, and I have an obligation by the grace and the faith given to each one in here to serve one another as a living sacrifice. Well, maybe I don't like some of y'all. I do. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying. Maybe you don't like my personality. Maybe there's something about me you don't like. I don't know. We all have that goofy, right, personality thing sometimes creep up in churches. That's not a living sacrifice anymore, is it? Because we're told to be a lot of things to each other. And the only way we can do that is by being a servant of His. We tend to think, we tend to forget that when we serve the Lord wholeheartedly as a living sacrifice, He will take care of every need we have. He's not, he's not blind to your servanthood. He's not blind to when you do good to another. He, he's not forgetting those things. He knows who's doing what. Now, Jesus came, right? We know that He came not to be served, did He? He said it Himself, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. The Son of God came here to serve. Philippians 2 says that, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. How much more can you humble yourself to serve others than to be at that place knowing who you are and yet clothe yourself with humanity to help others, to serve others? See, I need to hear this because I'm not as good as serving people as I should be. Does that confess your sins one to another? I'm not. I want to be. And I work hard at it sometimes. But Jesus came to only do what the Father showed Him to do. He only spoke what the Father told Him to speak. He was obedient in every way. And He was always looking out for others. 
So a believer's life, whether we like it or not, a believer's life is lived in sacrificial service to God and men. I'd rather it was the Christian life was me receiving benefits from you and God. And you can just bring them up and heap them on me and that'll be fine. But that's not the Christian life, is it? The Christian life is so intertwined with each other, there's no getting away from the fact that we're all connected somehow. We're connected somehow. We're all joined together. The day we're not joined together, we got problems, right? We know that. We're called in Galatians 5.13 that we are to love, we are but we are through love to serve one another. We are even told that our jobs, the things we do, in, in Colossians 3, he says, whatever you do, you don't do it with eye service as men pleasers. You do whatever you do, you do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. See, I've lived just about long enough. I'm almost got enough gray hair to look back and see a generation before me and maybe two before me where the purpose of business and commerce was to meet the needs of fellow human beings. Not just about making a dollar off of them. It's about you as a living sacrifice bringing what you have to another human being to provide them the best service you can possibly bring. Because you're doing your work as unto who? The Lord. The people get the benefit of that, don't they? From us in here, they should. They should get the best service and the best products out of everyone in this room. Because you're doing your work heartily as unto the Lord. And you're not doing it to be seen. Look how great a job I did. You're doing it as unto the Lord. So when we think about serving God, I don't, I don't look at God as someone that I serve out of fear. That if I step out of line, He's just going to, you know, strike me dead or something. I do see Him as a Heavenly Father who I willingly present myself as a living sacrifice. At least this is what I want to do. I'm not, I haven't arrived. I'm just... Don't take, don't take this wrong. Like I'm arrived. I'm still, you're up here. I'm still working at it. But the point is, these things have to become true in our lives. They have to function this way. Now, we all understand that as a servant, we're giving, we're given tasks to do or we're given orders we're given things that we need to do in life. We, we, we know what's right and wrong. We, we're told these things week after week through various speakers and things you hear. You know what's right and wrong. You choose to do them as a living sacrifice. But is just going through the motions and doing these things in the strictest form of obedience where you just mechanically like a robot just perform the duty, is that enough? Is there also an attitude or a motive 
that should be in our lives when we serve God and others? Or is it easy to just go through the motions and have a wrong motive? Because any one of us can be motivated wrongly. Right? I mean, we can, if we're called to serve, we're called to serve in fervent in spirit. We're called to serve in newness of spirit. We are told to be serving God singly. Right? You can't serve two masters. Is that what Matthew 6 says? You cannot serve two masters. It's impossible. It's been tried. It's still being tried today. I'm going to serve this, but I'm also going to pretend this. That's not servitude, friends. That's you making a choice, one or the other. But we can serve out of a wrong motive, and we can have a wrong attitude in our service. right? I mean, I can serve God, and it may appear as if I'm doing something honorable for Him. It could be totally self-serving. Absolutely. It may look like I'm really doing something for God. And it's totally about me. We know this, don't we? That we do things to either be seen of men or to gratify something in us that I did something for God. Well, that's not a, that's not a proper motive. What would be a right motive for serving God? I mean, Jesus, in John 14, 31, what I think is one of the most powerful things he said... He says, but he's telling his disciples this, but that the world may know that I love the Father. As the Father gave me command, so I do. He loved the Father so much that where was he going? To the cross. That the world may know that I love the Father, and as he has given me command, I do. Did he love the Father? Absolutely. Was his life based obediently upon love of the Father and His will. He was dedicated to it wholly. Turn over to Luke 7. Luke chapter 7. I think sometimes, I'm not going to include you, but me, sometimes I lose sight of I don't always have to examine, but you want to know, why do I serve the Lord? What's my motive? What is my motive for doing what I do? Or do we just do it out of just a mechanical obedience? Or do we just come to church because if we don't show up, somebody might wonder where we are. So we just come. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He obviously wasn't. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. 
One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. To whom little is forgiven, the same loves loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, we all know that story, don't we? And we understand that some maybe thought you grew up in a Christian home and you weren't so bad and there wasn't too many sins to forgive. So maybe for you, your love of the Lord isn't quite as great as somebody else who knows how corrupt they actually had become. Now, John and I met a man in the prison. His name was Jack. And this this passage is part of his testimony. But Jack's testimony, and he got out and, you know, we, we talked to him on occasion. But he used to come to our meetings when he was in the prison, and you could just tell. The man knew the Lord. But here's a man who found himself coming awake in a hospital bed to be told he had killed five people in an automobile accident because he was drunk. Now, that's pretty horrific. I don't think anybody in here has had that kind of a life. But he understood that as he was placed in county jail and it was filthy and dirty and ugly and moldy and black with crud, that the Lord spoke to him and said, that's you. That's what your life has become. You drank. You were mean to people. You were a brawler. Now, you killed five people in a car wreck and you don't even remember. Is God able to forgive that man? He has. Does Jack love much? He really does. And he's talked to members of the family and they've forgiven him. And he has quite a testimony, I think. But when you're facing five, 25 consecutive life sentences, you're not getting out of prison. It doesn't happen. I mean, that's one after another. I don't know if you're planning on living to be 150, but that's you're not getting out. Well, Jack trusted God. He loved the Lord. And whatever the Lord had for him, he was going to do. Well, I don't know how many years it was, but he was out in 15, 18 years. And now he's volunteering. And I, I like Jack. But the thing is, he was forgiven much. And he loves much. He's got no pretense about him. He's not serving God to show off to anybody. He understands. He remembers what he was forgiven of. And see, you turn over to Deuteronomy 28. I think, I think for us, 
And when we talk about our, our, our motive or our attitude in serving, there's some things we probably need to remember. But in Deuteronomy 28, I know we've been there. I know we've been in Deuteronomy 28 once or twice. But in Deuteronomy 28, we know that if you hear and you heed and you do, these blessings will come upon you, right? We know that one, right? If you you hear and you don't heed and you don't do, what comes upon you? Curses. Verse 47. found this an interesting verse because you did not serve the lord your god with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness in need of everything and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you does god want his people to serve him with joy and gladness because here's a people that eventually served him how? Purely mechanical. They brought the sacrifices. They went through the rituals. Did they serve him with joy and gladness? Why not? They forgot something, didn't they? They, they the, the further away they got from Egypt and the grand deliverance they had by the power of God's arm, the less and less that had a, an effect on their lives. The fervency, the the Miriam dancing with trembles and yes, we're delivered. Look what God has done. Of course, I think it only took three days, right, before they were complaining about no water, but it goes to show you what we're made of, doesn't it? But he wants them, he says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart. They were taken into captivity. They began to forget the reason why. In Exodus, turn over to Exodus quick, Exodus 12. We remember, remember when, when Moses was telling the people, listen, when your children ask, why are we doing this? They were supposed to tell them something, weren't they? They were supposed to explain something to them. Exodus chapter 12, verse 26. This is about the Passover. He says, And then it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service, the Passover? And you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. When they were telling their kids about what they were doing, what were they supposed to be reminding them of? The great deliverance. It wasn't just a feast they participated in. It wasn't just a ritual. It wasn't just a tradition. They were supposed to tell their children, this is why we do this. Stay excited. We were delivered from the hand of bondage. We used to be in Egypt and we were slaves. And we've been set free and this is why we do this. You don't just go through the law and say, do this and do this and do this. You're reminded of why we do these feasts. Exodus 13, verse 7. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 7. The Feast of Unleavened Bread shall be eaten seven days. 
And no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up out of Egypt. All of these things that they were supposed to tell their sons were not so they could repeat a tradition over and over and over again until they lost sight of what it meant to them. They were were supposed to be excited about it every time they did it. They were supposed to remember something. But because they had forgotten, because these things became traditions, because they became ritualistic, they no longer served God with joy and gladness. They only went through the motions. And they found themselves in Babylon. And they lost all of that abundance that they were supposed to be so grateful for. Verse 13. The law of the firstborn. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among you Uh, Among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this that you say to him? By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. To remind children that at one time we were slaves to Pharaoh and those in Egypt. And by this feast, by this Passover feast, by the feast of unleavened bread, by these various things, explain to them what this really means. But explain it to them with some feeling, right? How about some joy and gladness? This is what the Lord has done. As in Deuteronomy 15, it says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. You know, they failed. They failed to remember through these feasts what had been done for them by the Lord. I think everything in Scripture is written to me. Right? I mean, I need to learn everything I can from what these people's example was. You know, uh, uh, David in Psalm 51, you know, he's grieving over his sin. He's so sorrowful. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. He says, Make me hear joy and gladness. I think... That just like in the church of Ephesus, what are we talking, first generation church? Somewhere in there, right? Early on, a little earlier than this church, right? I mean, this was, hasn't been around since Ephesus. No, it's not quite that old. The church of Ephesus had a letter written to them by the Lord Jesus. It said, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience. I know that you don't tolerate false teaching and all these things. But what did they do wrong? What were they lacking? They left their first love. Well, big deal. They were still doing everything right, weren't they? See, you can be motivated when you're motivated not by love and everything becomes works 
and traditions and just what we've done for years, you become cold. We become less fervent. We forget what's been done for us. And the further away your initial experience becomes, the more ho-hum it can become in your mind. See, we're supposed to remember every time we take communion. What are we supposed to remember? His death till He comes. There is supposed to be something... You know, I, I hold the cup and bread in my hand and there are a time or two when I weep. Because I'm realizing that this is my part that He did for me. This is what He did for me in His death. This should cause me, it should cause you to serve the Lord with what? Joy and gladness and a fervency. These aren't... When all of these things that we preach and all these things that we participate in become ho-hum rituals... I think we should be careful because if the church in Ephesus and the other five that got a warning, four, however many, two didn't get warned, but who are we to think that these warnings wouldn't apply to us at some point? Are we so much farther along than the church at Ephesus? I'm not sure. So I take these things serious and I think, okay, if they could leave their first love, if something of a fervency, of something of a drive that says, I love the Lord so much, I'll do anything, I'll go anywhere, I'll serve anybody, I'll give anything, because I'm serving Him out of love. I have an excitement about it then. It's not just, yeah, I should do that. i got to help who? Again? They always need help. You know how many times my flesh maybe doesn't really want to go into the prison? Now, we mentioned that because it's something I do, but I go because there's people there. And quite honestly, you go somewhere often enough, like Jake and Hannah go over to neighborhoods over in Louisville, you begin to realize these are souls, these are people. And you actually get to know people and you you begin to love people it's not just let's go do that again and i and i put a gold star on my calendar i went oh big deal big deal ephesus they left their first love and jesus said this to them remember therefore where you have fallen repent and do the first works they were supposed to go back and remember something, weren't they? Where'd you start? Maybe some of you in here have never had a real dramatic conversion experience. I'm not saying you have to. But can you honestly say that you serve the Lord with fervency? Do, do, are you boiling? Are you just... Or are you just... Yeah, if something comes up, I'll... You know. We need to be careful. Matthew thirteen forty four. Remember Jesus said this. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, 
which a man found and hid. Right? This thing that we are receiving, this kingdom of God, this thing that we say is so important. He found it and he hid it. And it says, and for joy. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field for joy. He didn't go, I guess I got to sell everything I got. All right, if I have to, I guess I will. God better be looking at this because I'm giving up a lot. He did it with joy. With joy, he sold everything for the kingdom. So we do our remembrance. I believe we should remember in our worship. I I really do. There's, There's great songs we sing here. And to me, there's just sometimes when it reminds me of things and I'm just in it. Do I take it out of here? I'd like to think so. Because in here is a very short time. My rest of my life is lived out them doors among other people. So what are we to do then? If, if you don't feel that you have a fervency, if you think maybe, you know what, I'm not as quite on fire. I, I don't have quite the same love I had when I first got saved and understood that I was forgiven, I was delivered. And that has become almost a distant memory to the point where, yeah, I go to church. I'm hearing some good word. I do my devotions. But sometimes we need to be reminded of where we were. I don't like to go back and think about my sins, but to think about what has been done for me. If the Old Testament saints were to remind themselves through the Passover, the unleavened bread, law of the firstborn, and other reasons why they were to remember what was done for them, we can do the same. And the greatest example to me, or one of the good examples to me, is the whole story, the whole scenario. And I'm going to brief it real quick. Jesus has been in the garden. Nobody prays with him. He's arrested. They all scatter and he's left alone. He's taken to the high priest's house. He's spit upon. He's beaten. He's blindfolded. He's mocked. Next day, he's taken before Pilate. And the crowds come out. And they begin to accuse him of all kinds of false things. And what does he do? Says not a word in his defense, does he? He keeps himself silent. Even though he knew, I could call legions of angels down. And my father would deliver me. But I choose to keep silent while I am falsely accused by this religious mob. And who do they bring out? Barabbas. It's the custom, isn't it? I'm going to release one prisoner to you. Who do you want? Jesus? This guy here that is basically bloodied now and is standing here pretty meek and pretty feeble... And he's not even answering our questions. He won't even defend himself. Or do you want Barabbas, a a notorious criminal, a murderer, vile, corrupt, hater of God, hater of men, rebellious, 
One whose crime has already been judged as guilty. Who do you want? Barabbas or Jesus? Barabbas. I'd say there's no comparison. Barabbas. A man who was probably as corrupt and vile and smelled. We don't like smelly people, I know. But he was found guilty. He was guilty. He was the one they brought out. Here's your guilty man. Here's the one convicted of murder. Here's the one who should be crucified. Over here we have Jesus. What did he do wrong? Anybody. Tell me what Jesus did wrong. Nothing. He was the one anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and power who went about doing good. Healing all who were oppressed of the devil. He's the one who spent his whole life restoring people, seeking and saving the lost, healing all. How is there a comparison, Barabbas or Jesus? Jesus is guilty of nothing. Which of the two would they want released? Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! And Barabbas is thinking... I don't know what he's thinking. But you've got to be thinking, if you're Barabbas, I'm getting out of here. I'm getting out of here. And you know why he's getting out of here? Because that man right there will not defend himself. He won't say a word. He is willingly keeping his silence so that Barabbas can go free. He did the same for you and I, friends. He did the same. It's like you and I are standing in Barabbas' place and Jesus is being accused falsely and we're standing there knowing we're guilty as it gets. We're deserving of everything that Jesus is about to endure. And Jesus maintains his silence knowing that his silence will send him to the cross and Barabbas will go free. That's you and I, friends. That's Jesus and what he did for us. Barabbas deserves death. We deserve death. I deserve death. So they release Barabbas and they deliver Jesus. What, to me, is a picture of a greater love than that? Because Jesus knew, even though he stood alone, he knew his father was with him. He knew he could defend himself with one word and it was over. Because if he defended himself, he proved himself innocent. I, I believe if he defended himself before the crowd, it's over. Barabbas is going to the cross. So Barabbas goes free. And Jesus goes to the cross. That's what's been done for us. That's what we remember when we take communion. That's what we should have a fervency about. That's what we should be remembering when we hold the bread and the cup and go, this was done for me. It should generate a love for God that compels us to be servants to one another and to Him. 
One last verse, Habakkuk 3, verse 17. Some of you probably have this memorized. It says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and all the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on high hills. What has been done for us? If there was any way you could rehearse it in your mind and preach the gospel to yourself, to remind yourself of what's been done for you, ought to generate something of a fervency, of a love for God that compels us to lay down our lives for each other. We sing a song here on occasion, and I love this song. We all know it, right? When I remember what you've done, when I remember the shedding of your blood, I can't help but worship you. And I want to jump and I want to run, but I won't because I'm distinguished. <laughs> I mean, if you see me take off on that song, it's going to be, it just, I can't, can't help but worship you. For all you have done. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for... We just thank you that you have given so much to us. And I ask that your spirit would stir us up. That you would cause us to be fervent. To learn more about your love, that we may love you more. For you loved us first, that we may love you. We thank you for your word. We just ask that you would bless each member here. Lord, that your word would take root and it would produce the fruit that you desire it to produce. We ask your blessing upon each one of us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Stand to your feet. Are there any, anybody have anything we need to know about? Yes, Hunter. Everybody got that? Youth in the kitchen in the back. You're going to be on cleanup detail. You're going to be checking for papers and wrappers. And we're going to start taking names. No, we're not going to do that. Anybody else? Anybody else? Please greet somebody and you're dismissed.